Some people seem to move almost effortlessly from planning into action, but appearances can be deceiving. It all comes down to having a process that works for you. I'm your host, M. David Green. Hack the Process is a show about looking at the systems and processes that we build our lives around to support mindful, meaningful progress. This show explores ways that people get past that pivot point, from having a fantasy to putting something real out there into the world. If you're ready to stop planning and fantasizing and start taking action, let's hack the process together. Welcome back to Hack the Process. I'm David Green, I'm your host, and I'm really glad to have you here. It's been a wonderful week for me. I just released my new book, Scrum, Novice to Ninja, last week. And so far, I've been getting great feedback from folks, uh, which is always fun. And I'm looking forward to hearing what you think about it. And uh, in this episode, we're going to chat with Ron Lichty, who discovered his passion for technology early on when he realized that programming in assembly language was easier for him than writing in English. And he knows the difference because he's also worked as a journalist and published several books with co-authors. His most recent book, Managing the Unmanageable, is about how effective management can help software engineers achieve the ecstatic state of flow that Ron says comes from coding in a productive environment. We ask Ron about how he gravitated toward management despite his enthusiasm for programming, how and why he took his career from full-time employee to independent consultant, and what his experiences writing with co-authors have taught him about collaboration. So today I'm talking with Ron Lichty. And Ron, you've done so many different things. I'd like to ask you to introduce yourself to the listeners. Uh-huh. Um, I am um, a self-described nerd. I was uh, I recognized that I was a nerd when I was in the fourth, looking back and realizing that I built my first one transistor radio kit in the fourth grade. Uh, instead of playing with friends at my birthday party. Uh, so I figured that I was gonna be a double E starting probably when I was in the seventh grade, an electronics engineer, and then got to college and my horizons were suddenly wi- wildly opening and I um, took an opportunity to be a social worker in a volunteer program for a year and to be a writer and a graphic designer, including a journalist and an author and uh, a daily journalist and a graphic designer and a photojournalist for about for for uh, a period of time before I came back before I bought my first microcomputer for the purpose of writing a book and discovered that I could program this thing and that uh, in fact I found programming to be easier than writing right writing assembly language is easier than writing English and um, it, it paid better, and uh, and it had it, it provided more feedback uh, than those of us who are writers generally get from our audiences, and so that was that was really uh, eye opening to me and really awesome, and so I've been um, I've been in the programming world uh, since 1981. So we're still in 1981, and already there's so much going on in your life. <laughs> Yeah, and so I did program for about seven years. I um, I wrote two books on assembly language programming. I wrote um, compiler code generators. I wrote multimedia applications. I wrote word processing software uh, on, on the early microcomputers. And um, I wrote embedded microcontroller devices like hotel locking systems and smart card-based postage meters and some other things that I ended up getting a few patents on. Uh, and, and then... Um, felt like I had the best job in the whole world. I was in a two-person consulting company. We, we worked on just amazing stuff. 
But there was one other job that I was interested in, which was managing. And there was only really one other company I was interested in working for, and that was Apple Computer. And I went back and forth managing at Apple. I was at Apple for seven years. You and I worked together at Apple in that period of time. We commuted from San Francisco down to Cupertino together. Absolutely. I remember that well. And uh, I, I managed that product management group for about a year and a half. I then went looking for another job inside of Apple, and, uh, and it was a programming job. Um, about five minutes later, that group made me the manager of the programming group. And, uh, and six months later, I went looking for another programming job. And about five minutes after that, they made me the manager of that group. And at that point, I embraced management fully. I was wondering about that because a lot of people get into management, they kind of get kicked upstairs along the way and it isn't something that they planned on doing. And sometimes if they come from a technical background, they're not even particularly good at management. It's a hard thing to get your footing in. Yeah. So the first time I was actually looking for it, it was, it was, I was really curious about it and that's, and in a two person company, you don't get to manage. There's no management to be done in a two person company. And so that wasn't something I was going to do at Softwest at that first consulting company I was part of. And when Apple made me the offer to come be a manager, it was the opportunity to try that out. I wasn't certain that was my future after a year and a half doing it. It was hard. It was much like most people, I think, find when they get kicked upstairs, which is it's very different than what you expected. Um, it's in managing product management, you're even further from the, the code. You're even further from the technical background than, uh, than you are managing, managing at a first level manager of, of programmers. Uh, and that's why I went back into the programming world, actually, was that it was just that much further from what, from, from what my love was, which was code and technical conversations. So I've heard from a lot of managers that, um, that when they, when they get into management, the thing that, especially in a, in a technical field, what they really miss is the code that attracted them to the programming world in the first place. Yeah, I think the, the thing you leave behind as a manager is the ecstasy that you feel as a programmer when you get a program to work, when you get code to work, when you get the, the, the hard algorithm that you are working on and you see it actually come to fruition and, and it causes you to jump up and down out of your chair with joy. And you leave that behind when you become a manager. And that was a piece of why I went back to programming a couple of times. And what, but what you realize as a manager is that your job is to enable a whole group of people to get that experience. So I can find, I can see where you could find that in and of itself very motivational. You have to make your own decision about that trade-off and whether that trade-off is worthwhile. And it took me three times through that process to fully embrace the notion that that was what I wanted for the rest of, for at least the foreseeable part of next part of my career. <laughs> I'm curious, you, you got out of management or tried to get out of management three times. What, what was making you feel like you needed to get out of it? Um, you know, Apple, Apple was fond of reorging and, and they reorged out my first management role. They re reorged out the entire management layer that I was in. And so I had a choice of being an individual contributor in product management or going and looking for another job. And what I went and looked for was 
not a management job, but a programming job. So I didn't make the choice. The the prompt wasn't mine, but the choice then was. But there are all kinds of aspects of managing programmers. So I, I didn't say in my introduction that I um, three three years ago came out with a book with a co-author, Mickey Mantle, not the ball player, the the SVP of engineering. I bet he gets that question a lot. <laughs> the um, the two of us wrote a book on managing programmers and managing software development teams called Managing the Unmanageable, Roles, Tools, and Insights for Managing Software People and Teams. And part of what we both realized was that as a programmer, you see part of what your manager does, but there's there's a huge part of the role that's enormously important, it turns out, to, to, the, to the programming teams and to you as programmers, but that you don't see. There's there's your manager fending off the rest of the, the organization and, and, and giving you the freedom and the space and the quiet to work in. Um, there is your manager fomenting culture and uh, conversation and interaction that causes a group of people to become a team that, that gives that enables a group of people to become a team in 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 the in the truly capital t uh, uh definition of the word team and, and gives you the possibility of becoming a high performance team one of one of those teams that are truly amazing in the in the looking back and saying oh my gosh i was on a team that that created something greater than the sum of the parts that that we truly had synergy that we that we felt like a family together that i felt like other people had my back i that that um that we truly collaborated with each other to create something that was great I love how passionately you talk about the experience of being a, a manager. And I've talked with a number of managers in, in high-tech fields. And one of the things I notice from them is they tend not to be as passionate as you are about the experience. And a lot of them um, focus a lot on the fact that they were removed from the code and they missed the things that they started on. Where did you realize that passion? You know, I think it was, I think, I think it's come over time. I think that happened in part through the three back and forth between being a programmer or uh, yeah, being a programmer and being a manager. The going back and forth was really helpful in seeing what my managers were doing. In, in you know, I experienced being a manager, then I went back to being a programmer and had a manager and said, this manager is doing way more than I realized watch you know i think we i think as programmers we think oh you know our you know what do, what do our managers do you know they they you know they have one-on-ones with us and what do they do the rest of the time they're you know they must twiddle their thumbs or something and uh sometime later in my career i was i i went from apple from seven years at apple to three different startups at different stages. And one of them was inside a very large company. It was intrapreneur, intrapreneurial as opposed to entrepreneurial startup inside mm-hmm. of Fujitsu actually. And then I went to Schwab, which was another very large company that was that was initiating its e-commerce uh, arm. And, and I got to, to lead part of that organization. And I really had the sense of, uh, of how managers can impact things 
and and it's a um, interesting process. And in one of those, I had a team, and one of the one of the programmers came to me and said, "I don't think we need a manager anymore." And and I thought about it, and I thought, you know, this is this is truly a self-organizing team. This is truly a team that is self-motivated and self-driven, and they don't need me to tell them what to do. But in fact, that's not my role as a manager. My role as a manager is to communicate to the team the stuff they need to know and not, uh, and not let the rest of the organization get to them the rest of the time. Absolutely. That defensive role of management is something that I don't think a lot of people appreciate. Yeah, sort of like a, a shield, uh, you know, the, um, the Maxwell Smart had the, that, um, that sound shield that came down or that, that, uh, that blocked out all the noise. Yes, and unfortunately for a lot of managers, theirs work about as well as his. Uh, yeah, uh, but, I, but I realized that, that mine apparently was working fairly well because these guys didn't realize the extent to which I was protecting them. Now that's interesting because uh, it, it's it's a difficult thing to develop those the skills to do that. Uh, was was it just uh, like political awareness? Was it just uh, what, how did you develop that ability? <laughs> I, I I don't know how to answer that. Although the fact that I had the fact that I had gone off and been a journalist and a graphic designer and um and had developed a different part of my personality than just being the nerd that I was when I graduated from high school, I think probably had a, had a lot to do with um, my awareness of the opportunity for that. I think, I think I probably would have been a, a, a much more, a much less aware programmer, much less aware manager what what uh, what education did you have that prepared you to have such a broad uh, range of of uh, professions? You know, I look at my I look at my parents, and both of them were curious people who continued to learn through their lives. My dad was probably one of the best, probably one of the better farmers in the county I grew up in in Iowa, and um, and they. And this was a community that truly leveraged community. It's 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 one of the things I realized is built into my DNA is that that thing of building teamwork and building teams has to do with also building communities and building connection with other people in your profession. And I saw my dad do that in a farming community where where you know taken along to the to well to church or to the co-op or to the uh, lumber yard or to uh, the seed dealer, you know, wherever he took me along to by the hand when I was, when I was, you know, knee high, he was having those kinds of conversations with other farmers and they were talking about what they were trying and what was working and what wasn't working. And, you know, the kind of retrospecting that we do in, in agile um, programming groups, I saw my dad doing as a farmer with other farmers and uh, and interestingly, I'm not sure that there's a there's a profession that's more cussedly independent than programmers than farmers. <laughs> I like how you use your words. It's uh, it's terrific. One word you just mentioned that I think our listeners might not know is the word agile and the way that it applies in a programming team environment. Can you give a, a thumbnail description of what agile is for listeners who might not have a context for that? 
Um, Agile is a way of developing software that, in, that it's a set of best practices that um, includes instead of instead of uh, laying out a project that's going to take us two years to develop and we and we're not done for two years we try to be done every two weeks or or every uh, some we try to be done periodically whether it's a week or two weeks or three weeks but really short intervals and uh and we do an increment of the product every two weeks and deliver it to our customers and get feedback from them to see how we're doing and whether we're on track or not. One of the truths in software development, and I'm sure it's been true for you as it has been for me as the customer who says, I know that's what I said, but that's not what I wanted. And by giving them increments of the product every two weeks, we can find out whether it's actually what they wanted with where our goal is to delight our customer every time we deliver some new software to them. I like that. And the focus on delighting the customer, I think, is something that um, a lot of people are starting to realize is important. But for a number of years in there, people weren't talking a lot about that. You know, it's interesting. I've had that conversation just periodically and recently and in, in, in the realization that you and I are working at Apple. That was certainly my focus. I managed the group of people who were developing the UI for the Macintosh. And our 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 goal was how can we make software that delights ordinary people. So Agile is, is a, uh, it's a technique. And I'm curious how you came to it out of all of the different philosophies of managing uh, software engineering that are out there. I, um, one of my roles, I was at Schwab for six years and the last three years I spent on a project of the CIO is to move all of Schwab's software development from teams could pick any technology they wanted to all of them using a single technology platform. Uh, probably probably 1,200 developers across Schwab in, divided into lots of teams and different business units and different departments. And several of the VPs were trying something new called XP or extreme programming. And as a support group trying to make all of these teams be successful using a single platform, I, I engaged Kent Beck to come down and talk, who, who invented extreme programming, to come down and talk at Schwab and to coach their teams. I, 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 had, the, I had the budget to be able to support those teams in the periphery by being able to do that kind of thing and, and got some appreciation for that. Um, one of the things that occurred to me at the time was, this is really interesting that here at Schwab where we measure downtime Downtime in on Schwab.com can be measured in millions of dollars per minute. I can imagine. We measure downtime in millions of dollars per minute, and yet we're willing to consider something called extreme anything. <laughs> uh, rather odd to me. It seemed rather interesting to me. And so I began, began exploring it and digging into it and thinking, well, this is really interesting, the way this is doing this, and these incremental releases of software that get us early, early and frequent feedback are are incredibly valuable, and they begin to deal with the challenge that I'd always felt as a manager, which is the requirements. We we get a set of requirements at the beginning of a year long project, and 
and if only they would just stay the same for the entire year, if only our business people weren't bringing us more requirements all the time or different requirements or changing the requirements, I could be so much more successful as a development manager in delivering that software on time to spec. And Agile deals with that. Agile, Agile says, you know, our, uh, our developers can be heads down for two weeks. They can, the, the ultimate hyper-productive form for a programmer is to be able to climb into the microprocessor and listen to the gates open and close. <laughs> Says the man who's, who likes to write in assembly more than in English. It, oh, it's also called being in the zone. And, and what typically happens is that programmers are never able to get into the zone because somebody's constant, they, they get whiplash instead because someone's constantly changing the requirements on them. If in fact, we can give them two weeks and say, just go heads down on this set of requirements. These are, these are the requirements that are going to deliver the most value to our customers. I can see why a programmer would be sold on that immediately. Although I, I imagine that there are a lot of challenges to that approach from outside of the engineering organization. Well, if in fact the productivity is higher, and if we can say to our business people, you get to change, you can change as much as you want, including a full 180 degrees if you want on, on the two week boundaries. That and, and how important is it? That it's that it's you know on average five days before that two week boundary versus letting them be hyper productive and letting them actually deliver on what we what we just a week ago believed were the most the highest value requirements for our customers and letting them deliver that stuff and then and then making those changes so we get the we get we get the yin and yang of software development we get the total requirement frozen requirements for two weeks and then we let our business people change as much as they need to including 180 degrees on two-week boundaries but our programmers have delivered work an increment of working software they're getting that satisfaction and our business people are able to change direction and they're getting that satisfaction it's the yin and yang of software development i love that it also speaks specifically to the value that managers can bring to the process. I mean, because without the manager, you can't create that protective bubble around the engineers. Uh, so um, when you were when you were discovering this, when you found XP and when you found Kent Beck, I'm sure you were researching a lot of other things. Have you integrated other uh, techniques into your process or are you 100 percent pure? I, um, I didn't really. I, I, I supported extreme programming in 1999. It wasn't until I discovered Scrum in 2002, which Scrum is really that that closed iteration, deliver, plan a closed iteration, deliver it, uh, look for what's the next two-week iteration. It can go any direction that our product people needed to go in. It was when I discovered Scrum that I that I really felt that yin and yang of software development. That I really felt the, that this serves both communities really strongly, and that was the point at which I truly embraced it. I I think of um, I think of what I mostly I I do training for development teams in Agile at this point, and I support both teams and Scrum masters and product owners and managers. 
of teams that are doing agile at this point. And I, and I think of it as for the most part, helping them to get to scrum plus extreme programming engineering practices, or occasionally getting them to lean or Kanban plus extreme programming engineering practices. And Kanban's a, is, is particularly useful when we've got things coming at us that we can't group into this is a, this is a six month project and, and this is the two, the next two week part of it, but we've got things coming at us on a kind of daily basis and, and we want to incorporate those on, a, on an ongoing basis. And, and so Kanban is scrum like without the planning because we can't plan for, for when changes coming at us on a daily basis. Right. I, I'll, I'll include some links in the show notes for this to references on Scrum and XP and Kanban, which are all, I guess, considered flavors of Agile. Yes. Yes. Uh, in fact, the, the term Agile came along in 2001 after all of the flavors came along when the, when the people who created the flavors got together and said, what can we, is there an umbrella term that we can use for all of our flavors? And they came up with the word agile as being the term to use. And I think it's a very appropriate term. It really, it, it gives the sense of what, what you're trying to accomplish. Yes. Yes. Um, so you, so at the time that you discovered this, you were working full-time as an employee, as a manager, um, managing managers and managing teams. Um, and then you started transitioning in your career. I'm curious how that came about. Well, the, the, it came about in part from the, the challenge of the post dot com dot bomb, um, period. So, uh, in the, the challenges of staying employed during the 2002 to 2009, 2010 range, mm -hmm. um, you know, um, the economy of the economy in tech wasn't great at that time. And, and so there would be these periods in between being employed where serendipitous consulting engagements came along. I uh, found a colleague who brought me into a, he, um, he was being brought into, there were two, two half billion dollar companies that were merging in Europe uh, and they were merging their IT organizations, and the question was how to how how organizationally to do that, how technologically to do that. And he brought me in to to help, and, and that was really fun. Um, I got brought in to help saw I, a great deal of what I've done as a manager has been untangling the knots in software development. It's been helping teams to make software development home. It's been helping teams to discover how to become highly productive teams and become the kind of teams that they've always wanted to work on. And having that network of people who know what you're capable of is definitely helpful, especially when there are downturns in the economy and when things get a little bit iffy. Yep. And, yeah. and so I, I got brought into some of those things, sometimes to un untangle the knots in teams, sometimes to help train, to help transform them to agile, sometimes to do training in agile. And I began to realize toward the end of that period that I, that I, that that was where I wanted to take my career was to take it into a consulting kind of role where I got to work with multiple teams at a time and, and to, to engage in the untangling. I, I like the untangling more than I like running teams that are, that are humming. And I, and I like getting them to humming 
more than running them as humming. No, that was exactly what I was going to ask you about, because at the time, it sounds like you might have been um, looking for employment opportunities rather than consulting opportunities, but you shifted directions. I did, and uh, and the shift was was in part the realization of how much I enjoyed the 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 making making the change making part of the of the process of management, and in fact, that's a part of management that I had always done as an FTE, but then I hadn't enjoyed the part after that as much. I can and understand I, that. If I can just be in the change making part, then I then I'm going to get the most joy out of my career. That I can get, and I'm going to deliver the most value to my not employers, but now clients that I can deliver because that's in fact what I'm really great at. So making the shift from being a full-time employee to being a consultant who comes in uh, the hired gun, as it were, um, that also implies a number of changes in the way that you manage your own career. I'm curious what you discovered that you might not have expected at that time. I've been consulting full-time for about three and a half years now. I made the realization that I wanted to consult full-time about six years ago. I see. So it's been a, it's been a long transition. It was a long transition. And the first part of that transition was understanding what it was that I wanted to consult in and how to communicate that. And I, and I spent probably the better part of a year working on on basically a one-page brochure for myself that had the words in it that so so i i talk in terms of what i do as helping to make software development home in untangling the knots in software development in transforming chaos to clarity and i spent the better part of a year coming up with those words and those phrases and figuring out in figuring out, first of all, that that's what I've been doing in my career, that that's what I like doing in my career, that that's what I'm really good at doing, and then and then deriving the words and the phrases that describe that and being able to put them in an order that communicates it to someone else. I think those are very powerful and colorful phrases. They really paint the picture in a person's mind. If this is what I'm looking for, this is the person who can help me solve that problem. And probably your experience in journalism helped with being able to come up with a way of phrasing it that way. Did you seek any assistance from uh, like career counselors, coaches, anything like that? Um, I, I was part of job search communities. I helped to start a job search community in San Francisco and uh, was part of a couple of others. I had a, a, a job search success team that uh, most people were updating their resumes or their cover letters or their and getting feedback we were getting feedback from each other the feedback i was getting was on my one page brochure on myself the thing i realized as i realized i wanted to be a consultant was that a resume is is sort of it's not that it's irrelevant but it doesn't communicate what you do it's it's a description of what you've done and what i wanted was a brochure that described what i do um, I finally got it done and someone said, oh, you've got a one sheet. And, and I thought, oh, there's a name for this. Oh, that's interesting. I'm curious how that went over with the rest of your uh, your job search group, because they seem to be focused on employment and resumes. They, uh, they, they were um, uh, quite happy to help me to, we were really, we were focused on resumes, but we were really focused on 
helping each other's success. And, uh, and I, we were helping each other as individuals, as people. When you put together this, uh, this job search, job success group, how did you organize that? And how did you manage that? How did you find the people and how did you keep them coordinated? Um, I was, so I was part of, in the Bay Area, there are three big job search. There were at the time we create, we created the third job search organization. And I was just, I was just one of many people who helped to create that. Uh, it was called Graceworks. It met at, at Grace Cathedral in San Francisco. Um, and it just put out the word that this, that there was a meeting place and we organized um, speakers uh, weekly. And, and we, it, it was basically a job search meetup before meetups, before meetup.com existed. It was hard to organize things like that back then. So in the in the work that you've uh, when when you transitioned, you were trying to get your your message out to people through your one sheet. I assume that you have uh, you have this set of skills, and I'm curious how you got that message out to people. So how I got the message out to people was blogging, and publishing status updates on uh, LinkedIn and Facebook and um, Google Plus and Twitter, and speaking uh, at professional groups, uh, professional groups related to what I do in the Bay Area and, um, and, and using a synergy of those things. So then doing status updates that I was speaking at some, you know, it, 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 they all feed each other basically, but it's, it's the communicating who you are and what you do on a, on a fairly regular basis to remind your network that you're out there and to think of you when they've got a need, to think of you as being able to supply the answer when they've got a question, to think of you as being able to provide the solution when they've got an issue. Did you come up with your communication strategy yourself or is this something that somebody helped you with? I think it was, it was, it was by myself and it was probably organic. It was, it was um, realizing I needed to be out there. So I, I for sure came up with the notion of the one sheet on my own and then discovered there was a name for it. Um, and I was, you know, I was communicating what it was I was doing and learning and um, providing on a, on a regular basis with the, with the, you know, I think all of us, all, all of us, I, many of us were doing this as Facebook came along, as LinkedIn came along, as, you know, we were, we we're communicating with each other who we were and what we were doing and what we were providing. And as I did that, people were contacting me and saying, could you help? I was giving a talk, this was before I went to Stanford, in one of those serendipitous consulting engagements, I was giving a talk on... Um, Transforming Chaos to Clarity at a group called SoftTech, which met in Marin monthly, a group of technologists up there. And I published a status update that said, I'm giving this talk. It's on Transforming Chaos to Clarity. One of my former Schwab colleagues was now VP of Engineering at a company down in the South Bay who sent me an email saying, could you come help? I got a lot of chaos that I need some clarity for. <laughs> you come help me. Um, I 
got certified as a scrum master and and just published that I've been certified as a scrum master and one of one of my uh, uh, weaker connections to use um, I forget the guy who does the did the theory of weak connections um, uh, weak ties mm-hmm. um, uh, who I who I knew um, but not closely contacted me and said could you come and train my team in scrum and I said, yes, I've taken a lot of training myself. I've helped organizations to become agile. I've managed organizations that, that, that become agile. I can, I can train your team to do this. And I, uh, and I came and did a two-day training for their team. And that was the first full training I'd done. I'd done pieces of it, but never put it together into a two-day training before. And it became the first training that I delivered. And I've been fortunate enough to see you uh, lead two separate teams through those two-day trainings. Um, and, you know, you, you do a very impressive job of it. Are you certified to train as well? Uh, no, I've never, I've never gone after that. I do a little bit of career counseling for people. And one of the things that I notice is a lot of people tend to try to gather as many certifications as possible so that they can meet all of the requirements on job, on, uh, job listings. And I'm curious uh, how you feel about certification. Fundamentally, Agile, Scrum, Extreme Programming looks different in every organization. And the experience of helping teams to adopt and adapt this set of best practices to that team, the experience of doing that over and over again, experience counts way more than the training that you've gotten in it is because the training gives you the practices, but not the practice. The practices, but not the practice. That's a very good way to put it. How do you manage your consulting career? Are you working with a lot of different clients simultaneously? Do you work on a focused basis with one client at a time? Yeah, I, um, I I describe what I do, uh, what I what I actually what I thought when I went out as a consulting practice was that I that the roles I would take on would be fractional interim VP of engineering and fractional acting CTO roles, and um, and so there are CTO roles that are fundamentally software architecture roles. That's not what I do. There are are on the other hand CTO roles that are about leading software development organizations to be as powerful and as and as successful and as productive as they can be and that is the kind of CTO role that I am and that's often also called VP of engineering I have also filled in with a fair amount of training I've, I've done scores of I've trained scores of teams I finished the book that my co-author and I have been working on, Managing the Unmanageable. Uh, It was another thing to do status updates about that our book was finally published. Mickey and I had been working on it for almost a decade. Um, At that point, we had gathered 300 rules of thumb from the managers and VPs of engineering and directors of engineering and CTOs whom we were whom we reached out to for their rules of thumb in managing. One of the things I love about uh, about reading Managing the Unmanageable is it's the sort of book that uh, you can either read from front to back or you can just dip in and find a little nugget of inspiration. Mm, yeah. Good. 
That was, that was the intention. <laughs> well, it it worked. I'm curious about the experience of co-authoring a book. Is this is this by the way? Is this a book you you self published, or was this written for a publisher? Uh, no, it was published by Addison Wesley, uh, one of one of the divisions of Pearson uh, Books. Um, we I um, I have written five books at this point. Four of them I had co-authors with. And uh, all four of those were published by one of the major New York houses. It's a difficult thing, I think, uh, co-authoring a book because you have to coordinate uh, so much. My co-author and I, Mickey Mantel and I, had known each other for a decade already when we started working. So we've known each other for 20 years. I had been the director of engineering at Berkeley Systems, where we did screensavers and games, um, After Dark, Flying Toasters. Oh, I remember those. <laughs> Uh, the, the things that kept uh, CRTs from uh, burning in back in the day. Um, and uh, Mickey was the VP of engineering at Broaderbund, which was doing a great deal of kids software. They were doing um, Where in the World is Carmen Sandiego? And they were doing Living Books. And, uh, and we, were, we were in compatible industries. I went, um, I, I um, got laid off from Berkeley Systems. They had, they had been on an upswing when they hired me. Uh, not long after that, they were on a downswing and they eliminated my level of management and they offered me another job. And I said, you gave me the first director of engineering job. I like being a director of engineering. I want to do that somewhere else, um, it, it, given, given it's being eliminated here. And I went looking for another job and I interviewed with Mickey. And in two weeks after I left Berkeley Systems, I had three offers of jobs, and, and I took one uh, uh, two days after interviewing with Mickey. But I called him up and said, you know, this was really fun interviewing with you. We had, we had a really fascinating conversation during the interview. I'm one of those people who I like interviewing. I, it, I, I like interviewing for jobs. It's, it's, you find out so much about what's going on in the world doing this, and you meet some really interesting people oftentimes. And Mickey was one of those people. And I said, could we get together for a Saturday breakfast and continue the conversation we had during the interview? And he said, yes. Absolutely. That's a great case study in how you can take advantage of an interview where you don't actually take the job, but you still take advantage of the network that you establish. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and it began a series of, of Saturday, Saturday and Sunday breakfasts that la that lasted for a decade. This now lasted for 20 years and 10 years in Mickey said, I've been thinking of writing this book for the last 15 years. Would you consider it writing it with me? And I said, I wrote my last book 15 years ago and swore off ever writing another book, but I'm thinking of writing another book and it would be on managing software developers and programmers. What's your book going to be on? And he said, I want to write a book called Managing Programmers is Like Herding Cats. And, uh, and I said, that's what I'm writing on. And so the first, and so the challenge, the challenge of co-authoring is, uh, I think one, can can you work together, and two, is your writing style compatible with each other? And so we we set about then to see if we could do those two things, and it turned out that 
it turns out that our writing styles are so similar that uh, I can go in, I can dip into the book and I'm not short of it being anecdotal about one of our workplaces. It's difficult for me to spot which part I wrote and which part he wrote. That's a, it's a very valuable quality in a collaborator. It, it, in this collaboration, you say it was a nine year collaboration on this one book. Yes. That probably speaks more to the number of things both of you were working on than the difficulty of writing the book. It it does, and it speaks to why I swore off books after the previous one. My co-author and I, I had written two, two books on programming and assembly language. My co-author and I had had a six-month deadline for writing 450 pages of programming and prose. Wow. And, uh, and I didn't do anything other than write uh, evenings and weekends with the exception of Christmas day and Thanksgiving day for six months. And I didn't want to do that again. And Mickey and I decided that we weren't going to, we were, we were going to solicit a publisher. We were going to, but we weren't going to take on a deadline before we were ready. And being, being able to do that is uh, it, it's a, it's not not always available to everybody. And I like the way that self-publishing actually makes that more available to people these days than it ever was before. It does. And, and the, the, um, there, are, there are advantages both sides. There are advantages to self-publishing. I, um, For example, all my self-publishing friends are able to give out copies of their book, which costs them a couple of bucks. If I want a copy of my book, it costs me basically the same as it costs you to buy it on Amazon. Uh, there's no less, there's no smaller, it costs me about 24 bucks to buy a copy of the book. Uh, it's, it, it costs me my publisher's time in editing in the time that they allocate to uh, editing and graphic design and, and printing and all those things that I didn't have to do. And thus I have to pay them for their part of doing that. Uh, every time I want a copy of my book to hand out. Now, they support me when I'm handing out promotional copies for, uh, for publicity uh, and for reviews and those kinds of things. They, they support that um, uh, generously. And so I'm, I'm, I'm not unhappy about this. It's just it's the difference between self-publishing and being published by someone else is you don't have to do a bunch of things but you also don't get a bunch of things. So where can listeners find out more about what you've, uh, what you've written, what you've published, where you're speaking? Where can, where can people find you? Um, managingtheunmanageable.net and uh, ronlichty.com. So managing the unmanageable, you've got to spell all that stuff. <laughs> ronlichty.com, you've got to spell my last name. So one or the other, <laughs> figure that out. Lichty is L-I-C-H-T-Y. Okay, fair enough. I will make sure to include links in the show notes for the people who don't want to type all of that out. Thank you so much for making the time to come and chat with us today. Uh, David, it's always a pleasure to chat with you, and, uh, and this is a special opportunity. Are you glad you listened to this episode of Hack the Process? Then take an action now. Make a note about something you just heard and how it's going to help you as you hack your own process. And let me know about it. This has been M. David Green, your host for Hack the Process. You can tweet me at Hack the Process, leave a review for the show on iTunes, and visit HackTheProcess.com to check out the show notes for this episode and join our community of process hackers. Thanks for listening. <laughs>